Good morning, SunWest. It's good to be with you, and I think I say that line every Sunday, it's good to be with you. Uh, but sometimes I mean it more than others, uh, no offense, uh, but I particularly mean it uh, this morning. I think, uh, you know, Kendall was just referring to it. We've, uh, there's a lot going on in our world, and uh, it's overwhelming, and sometimes it's hard to know what to, what to do. Uh, but at the very least, when we gather together, uh, we get to remind ourselves about uh, the grand story. Uh, we get to uh, remind ourselves of uh, that Jesus is still on his throne and that God is God and that, um, that he's in the process of redeeming and reconciling all things. And, and so despite what we might feel, despite what we might, might see, uh, coming together actually gives us the opportunity to remind each other uh, of the, the good news that we get to participate in. And so we hold this tension uh, of between, uh, between Jesus coming again and where we are now, and we, we talk about this kingdom of God that is coming. It's invading the earth, but it's here, but it's not fully yet. Uh, in times like this, we were particularly mindful of, of that tension that we, we feel. And as Christians, we feel very, very deeply. Uh, and so before we jump into this morning's message, I, uh, I just want to pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi together. I, it came to mind yesterday as I was processing the events going on, and uh, our vision statement, which we'll talk about in a second, is Shalom Breakers Becoming Shalom Makers. And, uh, and part of that means that God is partnering with us in the midst of the suffering, pain, confusion that's going on in the world. Uh, and so part of our response to him is to worship him, as we've talked about a lot in this last couple months, uh, but then also to be available to him uh, and aware of what his spirit is doing to partner with him and what he's doing. And so this is kind of the heartbeat of St. Francis, Francis's prayer. Uh, and so we're going to pray this together. We're going to pray it twice, uh, mostly because I often read things the first time and don't pay attention to what I read, and then I read it the second time. And, I, uh, and so we're going to do it together twice. And I'm going to invite you to pray the yellow parts uh, and then I'll speak the white part. So it's kind of responsive, uh, responsive prayer. And so we'll read it together once, and then we'll, we'll do it one more time, okay? Uh, so let us pray this together. Lord, make us an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, Lord, make us instruments of thy peace. Where there is hatred, where there is injury, where there is discord, where there is doubt, where there is despair, where there is darkness, where there is sadness. Amen. As we've been going through this Shalom Project series, um, it's... uh, just feels timely. I mean, as we, we think about shalom uh, and, and the word shalom, uh, for those who have not uh, been with us all along, uh, shalom is a, is a word, it's a Hebrew word uh, that often gets translated as peace in our Bibles, but it's more than peace. It, it's talking about uh, the, the harmony of relationships the way they were intended to be. And so we've been referring to shalom in terms of four uh, relationships between us and God, us and ourselves, uh, uh, us and others, which we're going to start today after three weeks, and then us in the world. Uh, and this is so timely as we look around the world, and whether you're a believer or not, whether you have faith or not, uh, there's something in us as human beings that say, hey, something's not right. This just feels wrong. This feels off. This, uh, you know, and the, God has, has uh, created this world in a certain way. He's created us humans to actually reflect his image uh, to the world. We've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, but the gospel narrative, the good news that Jesus has done, actually uh, gives us uh, something to cling to. It gives us an orientation in a door- disoriented world. Uh, and so my prayer as we kind of go through the series, and, and uh, in particular as we look at shalom with others and then shalom in the world, and we're going to look at those two together over the next six weeks, others and then the world, uh, I pray that God would, would challenge us, would inspire us, and uh, his spirit would work in us as a community, uh, particularly in light of what is going on in the world. So we're talking about shalom with others, and uh, so we're talking about this in the background of bombs being dropped, our news feeds being blown up, uh, 
uh, and trucker convoys and government mandates and national polarizations, depending on cities and provinces and political agendas and all manner of issues. Uh, and so it seems timely, right, that we're talking about shalom uh, with others. And so we're going we're gonna to start particularly uh, in, in personal relationships, but you'll see as we go that, that these relationships expand, that all of these areas of shalom are connected to each other. Um, and there, there's a certain order of them, and that's why we've talked about shalom with God, then shalom with self, understanding who we are because of who God is. Uh, and then as that happens, we are actually able to engage with others uh, in, in the way that God designed us to engage with others, and then that creeps into how we relate uh, in our world. Uh, and so these three relationships are necessarily connected. Uh, it's imperative that we recognize the connection between these three. You cannot separate these three spheres, although we would love to do it. Uh, it is actually impossible. And we will not know who we are as people until we know who God is, because he created us in his image. And as we understand who we are, uh, have harmony with ourselves, shalom with ourselves, it actually sets us up to relate well uh, and positively in a, in a healthy way, in a God-honoring way with other people. Uh, when we have broken relationship with God and with ourself, we actually manipulate relationships out of that brokenness, uh, and we end up hurting other people. And so there's a natural flow uh, in these relationships. Uh, and Jesus himself did not separate them. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't respond with one commandment. He responded with two. Uh, so he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And went right into the second one. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is saying the litmus test for your love for God is your love of neighbor. Which should lead us to ask, well, who's our neighbor? And Jesus answers that question as well. He, said, I said, he, say, he says, love uh, even your enemies. Bless them who curse you. Do good to them and ha- uh, that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, And so Jesus uh, actually gives us very little room to separate these three spheres. He gives us no room to separate them. Uh, In fact, we often want to separate even our neighbors and our enemies. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. And so what we see is that the litmus test for our love for God is our love for others, is our love for our neighbor. And the litmus test for our love for our neighbor is our love for our enemies. And so we have no shortage of enemies. Uh, and if, if you look at Matthew 25, there's a long parable in Matthew 25, um, but Jesus is talking about the least of these, and what he's saying is, you loved me the way you loved the least of these. And, and the kind of the summary of that whole parable that Jesus gives is, is that we only love God to the degree that we love others. We only love God to the degree that we love those, the least of these. We only love God to the degree that we love our enemies. And so it's, it's easy to deceive ourselves and think, oh, we love God, we love God. And then we get in, into life in conflict with others and we have real world enemies and we think about what's happening in our hearts and it, it's quite sobering to start to view our love for God in the context and to the degree that we love others. Uh, and so I want to begin this three-part series on shalom with others uh, with the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the prodigal son, uh, as you may have heard it. Uh, it's a beautiful parable. It's a convicting parable. Uh, and the reason I'm choosing this parable is because I think it, it actually illustrates uh, beautifully, masterf- masterfully, the relationships of all three of these spheres. Um, and so as we, we move from shalom with God to shalom from self, and now we're talking about shalom with others. Um, I hope you can see that these are, these are connected, that we cannot separate them. And so I am going to read the parable first, and you're going to listen. I, well, I hope you choose to listen. Uh, you can distract yourself if you like, but I would encourage you to listen. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and it should probably be called the parable of the prodigal sons, because it's not a parable about one son, it's a parable about two sons. Uh, and a little bit of the context that this is happening, that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a crowd of people, and in this crowd are people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, some religious, some not religious. And so there's a group of Pharisees, religious teachers of the law, uh, people that have gone to church their whole lives, that know all the right answers, you know, that annoying kid that 
puts up his hand in Sunday school if you grew up in church. I had one of those. Um, anyways, I, we won't get into that. That's, that's unfruitful. Uh, but, you know, they got the religious people that know all the right answers. And then uh, they have their sinners, there's tax collectors, uh, and tax collectors and sinners are often put in the same category together because sinners were uh, non-Jewish people, pagans, uh, people that weren't trying to follow God. Tax collectors were Jewish people who were traitors who partnered with the Roman government to actually tax uh, their own people. And so they were viewed as traitors, as they were betrayers, uh, and they were oppressors. And so you have the religious group, the church-going group, the people that always went to church, and then you got the, the pagans and the sinners and the traitors, and these are all making up the, the crowd that Jesus is, is speaking to. Uh, at, before Jesus tells this parable, he also tells two other parables. Uh, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, uh, which is the, the story where there's 100 sheep and one sheep uh, goes missing, and the shepherd leads the 99 and goes and pursues the, the lost sheep and then brings that sheep back, and then there's a party. And then there's a parable of the lost coin where this woman loses a coin and she goes looking for the coin until she finds the coin. When she finds the coin, she throws a party. And then we get into the third parable that Jesus gives. And this one you'll see is very similar, uh, but it has a twist to it. Uh, and it's different than the other three. So here we go. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never, never, diso- and you and never disobeyed your orders. You, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could... Celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you fill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this is a, a powerful story. It's one of my favorite stories. I love the story and I hate the story. I love the story because I can find myself in it every time I read it, and I hate the story because I can find myself in it every time I read it. Uh, And I trust that as we go through it, you will experience the same. And there's a surface level of the story that that we see and that we understand, and and it's in line with the other three parables. Uh, But there's some other layers that are going on uh, that I think are quite uh, timely for us as we we think about shalom with others. So we're going to just walk through it uh, step by step here. Uh, Beginning in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Uh, So the rule of thumb in this culture at this time was that the oldest son got a double portion of whatever the other children got. Uh, And so they would get an inheritance. They would get get land. They would get 
um, the wealth of the father. Uh, and if there was only two sons, which there are in this story, the older son would then get two-thirds, and the youngest son would get one-third of the inheritance, of the wealth and of the land. Uh, and so what the younger son is saying, and obviously you only got the inheritance when your father died. So what the younger son is saying, he's coming to the father, uh, and he's basically saying this, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. That's what he's saying. I want your stuff, but I want you. I want the things of the Father, but I don't want the Father. My relationship with you has only been a means to an end. I'm not interested in the relationship as I'm interested in what this relationship can do for me. So that's what the Son is saying to the Father. Uh, And sometimes in the West, we have a hard time understanding uh, these honor and shame cultures, although our culture is increasingly becoming an honor and shame culture. Um, but, but typically, Eastern cultures understand this better, the honor and shame culture. If, if a son would say this to the father, uh, this, was, uh, this was basically you know, a death sentence. Uh, you're going to get cut off from the family. You're not going to get anything. Uh, you, you are going to be in trouble. Uh, and I ha- kind of have this picture when I, when I think of it, and um, I'm not sure... Uh, if this is going to resonate or not. Um, but old school discipline in families, not new school, because I know this isn't allowed anymore. Uh, but uh, have, how many of you ever had a father crack his belt on you? Anybody? Okay, a few bold hands going up. You're like, I don't want to get my father in trouble. Okay, my, I had a few times in my life where my dad would do this. I, you know, I'd, I, I would do something so terribly wrong uh, and, and he would take off his belt, and he was a few rooms away, and I could hear him walking down the hall, crack. I think the fear of the crack, the fear of what was coming was worse than what was actually coming, but he would crack it on his way, on his way to me. Uh, and, and so the, in, in this culture, the father, we, we would expect the culture or this father to respond uh, in, in, in quite an extreme way. Uh, and I can tell you exactly what that's going to look like, uh, but I don't think a crack belt would be the worst of the son's issues. Uh, but we see that the father responds in a certain way that is not expected in that culture. The father actually listens to the son, even though son says, I want nothing to do with you. I want you dead. I want your stuff more than I want you. You're just a means to my end. I'm just using this relationship for what I get out of it. The father allows himself to be acted upon and spoken to in that way. And the father actually blesses his son in a culture when he didn't deserve any type of blessing at all. And so the text says that he divided his property between them. He gave two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the younger son. Uh, and the word here, property, literally in the, in the Greek, which this was originally re- written in, the word property here is the word bios, which isn't the word property at all. It's actually where we get the word biology from, it's the word that means life. So what the text literally says is the father divided his life up between them. We see the posture of the father who represents God in the story. Uh, This posture of God that Jesus is talking about is one who actually gives up his life even when he is being insulted, when he's being rejected, when the love that he is sending out is not being returned back to him. The posture of the father is so countercultural then and now. But he divided up his life between them, even when he was being insulted. Uh, and so the story goes on. Not long after that, the younger son got together, all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And last series, we talked about our human longings, our human desires. And we see here in the story that the son has need. He is hungry. Uh, And in our moments of hunger, in our moments of weakness, those are often the times where we make life-altering, life-trajectory-type decisions. In the moment of greatest need, the son has the opportunity to choose the father or choose a different way, and he chooses to keep moving away from the father in his moment of need. Uh, and so he, he, he chooses a shortcut. He chooses, instead of honoring the father in the midst of his hunger and his need, he chooses a shortcut and goes to find a way to fill his own needs. 
Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about this last series. Uh, and so in his need, he goes out. He squandered his wealth and wild living. He spent everything he had, and there was severe f- famine. Um, and so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so in his hunger, in his need, he goes out and he continues to make poor decisions. And then so he hits rock bottom. And for whatever reason, as humans, it is often those moments where we hit rock bottom uh, that we begin to make some changes in our life. I don't know why that is. Uh, you could talk to someone way smarter than me, and they will tell you why that is. Um, but, but often, it's, it's not until the, the person uh, is experiencing so much discomfort that it's more uncomfortable to keep going than to remain the same or to, to change. It's more uncomfortable to keep going than to find change. And so this, the son, he gets so uncomfortable, so hungry, he's so desperate, he's, he's spent everything, he's made all the mistakes a son can make, Uh, And then the text says this, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, and again, in the the Greek, what it literally says here is he came to himself. It doesn't say he came to his senses, and 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 there's there's only a couple of translations I could find that actually translates it that way. He came back to himself. He came to himself. One of the most overlooked and insightful comments and this whole narrative is that the son actually went away from who he was, who he was created to be, the child of the father. And when he came back to himself was the moment that he came back to his father. Sin is fragmentation and fracture and shalom breaking in all sorts of directions, but not the least of those, which is in our own identity. And so the son comes back to himself, comes back to who he was, who he was created to be, has kind of this aha moment. And in that moment, he goes back to the father. So he came to himself and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So when he's asking to be, when he's thinking about being made into one of his father's hired servants, this is different than a slave. This is actually, in many ways, worse than a slave because a slave at this time would have lived and worked on the property with the landowner, would have interacted with the family. The son doesn't even think that he's able to be a slave. The son's plan here is to go back to the father and just to be a hired hand, which means he would live somewhere else, live in a different community, and he would commute to work every day, do the typical nine to five, work for his dad or his former dad because that relationship is over. Uh, and he would slowly begin to pay back that which he had robbed his father of. He would begin to pay back the inheritance and everything that he took. And so the mentality of the younger son that we need to understand is that this relationship is broken. It can't be restored, but I'm going to do whatever I can, and whatever I can do is just pay back what I've done. But he has no expectation to actually come back as a son. So, you know, you could picture him creating his, you know, his PowerPoint presentation about his financial plan. Dad, this is how it's going to work. You know, I'm going to, you know, live over there in Okotoks, and I'm going to drive into Calgary, and you're going to, if you'll pay me, you know, the minimum wage that you're paying your other hired hands, it'll take me this many years and I'll slowly pay back everything that I took from you. Um, that's all I want to do. So that's kind of, you know, the idea that this, this younger son's coming in with. So he shows up uh, and he's coming to, back to his, his, uh, his house that he had left. And it says that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So this plan, the son has a plan. He's got this financial plan. He's going to come back, and he encounters his father, who we get this picture has been sitting there waiting, longing for his son to come home, and he was filled with compassion. We see the predisposition of God is not 
uh, this, this anger. He doesn't come home to an angry dad. He actually comes home to a longing dad filled with compassion, waiting for his son to return. And then it says that he ran to his son. And this was completely unacceptable in that culture. Uh, men do not run. Uh, can I get an amen? Uh, men in that culture do not run. Uh, it, was, it was shameful for them to run. They had robes. They would have to hike up the robe and they'd have to move their legs. Uh, children ran, youth ran, women ran, but men didn't run. It was unacceptable. And sometimes we, we have... We have a hard time wrapping our heads around uh, some of these cultural offenses that are really embedded in the story. I, m- I remember uh, years ago when, I, when me and my wife, uh, who's now my wife, were dating when we were in college, we were at that stage in our relationship where we were meeting each other's parents. And I'd come to Calgary, I'd met her parents already, uh, and now I was taking them back to meet my parents. And uh, we lived in southern Manitoba, uh, in a farming community, and uh, Calgary in a farming community, very different cultures, okay? Uh, and so we, we go back to my small town in the farming community, and we're, we're staying at my parents' place, uh, and I remember one of the, the meals that we had. And so we, we sit down to, to eat our meal, and I think nothing of it because this is just what I did my whole life. And, uh, you know, my dad is working outside. He comes back inside. And, uh, you know, family sits down. We eat a meal together. And I could, you know, I could see this perplexed look on Lisa's face. And I, and I go and ask her what's up. And she said, she said, your dad ate that whole meal without his shirt on. I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works. He's, you know, working outside. Doesn't have a shirt on while he's working. He comes inside, eats his meal, and goes back outside. I was like, I didn't think I knew that. She's like, I feel like other than the pool side, I've never seen my dad without a shirt on. Uh, and she was just like, you know, you're eating your potatoes and roast beef, and, you know, there's your uh, future father-in-law without a shirt on beside you. So, uh, you know, culturally shocking moment. Um, and I can imagine if I showed up your place and I just took off my shirt for a meal together, uh, you would feel offended, you would be like, something's missing here. There's, a, there, there's something out of whack. Uh, and so we, we don't pick up on it when we read it, but this, this is actually, the, the people that were hearing this at the time would have been perplexed. This would have jumped out at them like, this does not make sense. This is shameful. This is culturally inappropriate. And, and so the father picks up his robe He's running, a patriarch in the family running towards his son. And we see that the father cares. Um, he doesn't care at all about what other people think. He doesn't care at all about what the culture says. He doesn't care at all about anything except the relationship with the son. That is his heart. That's his focus. That's his primary, primary concern is his son. That's all he sees. That's all he's thinking about. Picks up his robe, runs to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him and notice that the father embraces the son before he repents. The son can't even get to his speech. The son can't even get to his speech. He's showing up with this PowerPoint. He's got this five-point plan. Uh, He's got this expectation that the father's not going to allow him back. Uh, And the father is completely contradicting every expectation the son had, every expectation the culture had. Uh, And the father doesn't wait for the son to repent before he embraces him. He embraces him. He kisses the son. He doesn't kiss him because he repents. The son is able to repent because the father kisses him. Sometimes we think we repent because we need God to embrace us. But when we actually understand the heart of the Father, we realize repentance is a part of life because the Father is always waiting to embrace us. There's a difference. And so the Son, after he's embraced, after the Father's kissing him, ran to him, begins his speech, gets out the PowerPoint, or Father, here's my five-point plan, here's how I can make it right. Uh, The Father doesn't even let him finish. He starts talking, the Father interrupts him, and he says, but the Father said to his servants, he's like, I don't care what you're saying to me, um, it doesn't matter. Turn that PowerPoint off. Uh, he's talking to his servants. 
Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, when he says bring the best robe and put it on him, the best robe in the house would have been the father's robe itself. He's saying, put my robe on him. Give him the ring, which would have represented the family ring. He's a part of the family. It's a symbol of reinstatement back into the family. And the fattened calf reference is significant because in this time, people did not eat meat very often. The normal diet did not consist of meat. You know, many of us eat meat every day, maybe multiple times a day. Um, For them, it was a special occasion. It was a special occasion for them to eat meat, and there was particular meats that were particularly special that were only for certain big lifetime events. You know, fattened calf was kind of at the top of the chain of, of this was the cream of the crop. This was like the really good stuff that was probably reserved for a family wedding or something like that. And the father takes the fattened calf. He says, get that fattened calf that we've been saving for years. This is the moment we're celebrating. This is the moment. So we see the predisposition of God the father so clearly in the story. And in that culture, it was, it was not according to their expectations, what they thought the father should act like or would act like. Uh, and for many of us today, it's not how we understand God to act either. And we see this predisposition, this posture is consistent throughout the story. Uh, so this part of the story, it, it ends. It says, he was lost and is found, so they begin uh, to celebrate. And this, is, this statement is going to be repeated again at the end of the parable. And this is really important because... Uh, in this time, the way that people would tell stories or write stories, uh, if they wanted to highlight either the climax of the story or the plot twist in the story, what they would do is they would take a phrase and they re- repeat the exact same thing on the front and the back end of that section of the plot. And so if you look at the plot, uh, the way that it's outlined in Luke 15, uh, you know, the, the first instance is uh, the father says, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then at the end of the story, he says, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so what Jesus wants us to particularly pay attention to is this last part of the story. There's something significant going on here. Uh, And we see that up until this point, the parable has been the exact same as the other two. You know, there was the lost sheep, the lost sheep uh, the, the shepherd went out to find the sheep, brought it back, and there was a party. The lost coin, the woman found the coin, and, she, and then she gathered people, and they had a party. And now at this point, there was a lost son. Son came back, and there's a party. But it's not the end of the story. And so if we continue with the story, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in a field. And so Jesus is particularly concerned with the older son, more so than the younger son in the story, just by the way it's been framed. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, uh, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, I don't, we don't realize this part either when we read the story, is that uh, country music w- was in existence in the first century. I, I'm, uh, I'm being honest with you. I mean, it's, it's actually right there in the text. If you, if you follow along with the text, uh, what does it say? It said that the older brother heard the music, and then it said that he became angry and refused to go in. There's <laughs> textual evidence that Br- Blake Shelton was being played in the first century. Um, Maybe that was a soft spot for some of you there. I'm sorry. Um, but we're, we're going to come back to this phrase that he refused to go in again uh, a little bit later. But let's continue on with the story for now. So the father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and ne- never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now back to the lost sheep and the lost coin, every single one of those stories was the same. Uh, In every one of those stories, the person who was looking and searching went out. It uses the exact same phrase. The the shepherd went out. Uh, The woman went out to find the coin. And here we see the father went out to who? 
not to the younger son. We often think the, the lost son is the younger son. The father went out to find the older son. Part of what Jesus is, is showing us here is it's not just the lost son that's lost, the first, the youngest son, sorry, that's lost. Uh, the oldest son is also lost. And we can start to see why. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The son views himself as a slave. The son sees himself as a slave to the father. He's furious. You took the fattened calf. You're inviting the whole community. You're celebrating the shameful person that used to be your son. And then the son says, look. And he stops referring to the father as the father at this point. He starts talking to him, uh, talking down to the father. It's basically, we could translate it as, look you, is basically what it's saying. Look you, all these years, I've been your slave. All these years, I've been doing the right thing. And here's another moment where the father becomes publicly humiliated because he's throwing this public party for everybody and his oldest son is refusing to come into the party that he's throwing, throwing shame and public embarrassment on the father. The younger son and the older son, we don't see this initially in the parable, but their view of the father is the exact same. They both had the view of the father as, as a negotiator, as a owner, as a judge. If I, could, if, I, if I could just appease my dad, then I could have what I want. They earned or lost that relationship based on their behavior. For both of them, the father was just a means to the end. I'm going to actually, I want to be blessed. And so I'm going to do whatever I can do to be blessed. And so the, the youngest son, his route to being blessed was to ban his inheritance now and kind of say, screw you to dad and go live how I want. The oldest son, he thought the means to the end was to be obedient and to be good and to do everything right and, and, and to do what was expected of a good son so that in the end, he would have his dad's favor and be blessed. The problem is the motivation of the older son. He was only doing what was right for what he could get. He was only obeying dad for what dad could give him. He wasn't as interested in a relationship with the father as he was with getting the father's stuff. It's the same thing as the younger son. And then the older brother continues. He says, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home and you, and you kill the, the fattened calf for him. And you notice he can't even call his brother brother anymore. He's, he's actually disowned his own brother. He doesn't say, my younger brother, he says, this son of yours. And so in the same sentence, he has disowned his brother and he's also unsunned himself. He, he's so upset with his dad that he can't refer to him as dad. He can't refer to him as father. He can't refer to his brother as brother. Uh, he has pushed himself away from his own family. You're no longer my father. You're no longer my brother. And notice, if you can compare what the younger brother did with what the older brother actually says he did, they're not the same thing. And this is intriguing to me. It's amazing how, as humans, we tend to fill in the gaps of the unknown with our own narrative of whatever benefits us. The text says that the, the younger son went off and squandered his wealth away in wild living, and we can guess what that is, but this, the, the, the older son decides to create his own story of what that actually was. He squandered your property with prostitutes and comes home. Now, did that actually happen? I don't know, but I know that it serves the older son's point. That was just a bit of a sub-point that I'm making, but I, I just find... Uh, how often uh, we fill in the gaps of stories for other people when they've offended us um, or it benefits us. Uh, and and there, it, it's, a, it's a source of so much misinformation. Uh, and I think as followers of Jesus, we need to be careful how we fill in the gaps. Uh, that's all I'm saying. And so the older son, uh, he comes in, fills in the gaps with his, uh, some extra commentary, 
making his complaint to the father. Uh, he's offending the father. And uh, at this point, we see the same predisposition from the father. How is the father going to respond? Is he going to take off his belt? Is he going to snap it? Is he going to punish it? Is he going to disown his son? Well, what does it say? It says, my son. Literally, the word is my child. My child, the father said, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. You were never a slave. Everything that was here was yours. You owned it. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then the story ends. Uh, And I love it that the story ends because Jesus, the way he twisted the story, he was particularly targeting the religious folks, the people that had all the right answers, that were doing everything good, that were trying to follow the rules. Uh, And he's kind of pointing out something in their hearts. And we don't know how the story ends because the story, I think, in many ways is still being written. How would those who are listening respond to him? How are those today who are listening to the parable, how will we respond to Jesus? I want to come back to the line, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Why does the older brother refuse to go into the party? Well, I think there's, there's lots of things, but there, there's three... There's three signs, I think, of an older brother. I'm going to use that kind of metaphorically. Um, Usually with older brothers, like we see in the story, there's an undercurrent of anger throughout their lives, and they're always going to be angry about something. Why? Well, because of the the way they view God, the way they view the world, um, if they mess up, they will become so angry with themselves because their expectation of how they were supposed to live and do everything right and how that was tied to their own value and being loved and accepted actually fell apart. And so if they screw up, they get angry. If they do everything perfectly and well, they get angry. Why? Because other people that are shown grace, forgiveness, get opportunity that they shouldn't have, actually becomes a source of bitterness and resentment. So older brothers because of their heart heart posture, always find themselves in a place of bitterness and anger and frustration and injustice, always. The second thing, older brothers, um, their mind is filled more with duty than beauty. More with duty than beauty. the, The older brother in the story all he wanted was his, was his dad's affection. He wanted uh, everything his dad had. He wanted you know, everything that uh, was coming to him anyways. Uh, but what he didn't realize is that it was all his the whole time he was living in his father's house. Anyhow, everything that the father had was his. And what he was viewing, uh, his whole life, he was viewing in the context of duty, of being a slave. He couldn't see the beauty. He couldn't see that the very thing he longed for and wanted was what he had all along. And then... Older brothers also have the sense of superiority. Their worth is built on their performance. And their performance, they gauge how their performance is doing by comparing themselves to others. And so the the son, the older son, is always comparing himself in the parable to the younger son. His righteousness is tied, yes, to his behavior, but it's also tied to the unrighteousness of the younger brother. And so older brothers, they're always comparing. How am I compared to so-and-so? Compared to so-and-so. Oh, I'm doing better than them. Uh, I'm more right than them. And so we we see these characteristics of the older brother in the story, uh, but we look around in our world and we can see these characteristics of the older brother all over the place. So the question I haven't answered yet, why didn't the older brother go back into the party? Why didn't he go in? Why was he outside the party? Well, the simple answer is unforgiveness. He had an unforgiving heart. That's the simple answer. What's the deeper answer? Well, why why was he unforgiving? For some of the reasons we already stated. Uh, But if you go back to the beginning of the parable, what did the father do when the son asked for his inheritance? It says he divided his property among them, right? One third to the youngest brother and how much to the older brother? Okay, there we go. Two-thirds, okay? And so if you take one-third away, and I, just so you know, I failed grade 10 math, so if I can do this math, you can do it. If you take one-third away, and you got two-thirds left, 
what percentage of what is left is the older brothers? 100% from the school teacher in the front row. 100%. If the father divided his property between them, gave one-third to the younger brother, two-thirds to the older brother, the younger brother went and squandered everything, all the third is gone, and they were going to reinstate the younger brother back into the family, it would have been at the cost of who? The older brother. We know that this is the predisposition of the father, that the father was willing to suffer himself because he was for his sons. But the son did not share the same predisposition as the father. Many of us don't join the party of shalom because of unforgiveness. Yes, some of us are younger brothers. And if you're a younger brother, you're tuning in online, you're here this morning, uh, there is... uh, The first part of this parable is a beautiful picture of God's heart towards you. Uh, And I pray that you would experience the unconditional embrace of the Father and His love, that your expectations of God uh, and how He's out for you, that those would be blown up and you would realize that the, the Father has been waiting and longing for you to turn and come back and He's ready to embrace you and bring you back into the family of God. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel, absolutely. And so if you find yourself in the story of the younger brother, please hear the call and the invitation of God to come back home. But many of us started out as younger brothers and we find ourselves over the course of our lives becoming older brothers. We become more resentful, more bitter. We find ourselves being more angry. We start playing the comparison game. We we see life and celebration and we have a hard time participating in it. Why? Why does that happen? It happens because of unforgiveness, and we're not willing to forgive because forgiveness costs something. The older brother didn't receive his younger brother back because it was going to cost him something, and that's absolutely true. For forgiveness to take place, it will always cost the person who's forgiving, without exception. There is always a cost of forgiveness but we see that there's also a cost to unforgiveness. We see that the cost to unforgiveness is that the older son himself who wanted to be a part of the family and to please the father and get all of his stuff is now on the outside looking in. He's not participating in the party at all. And I understand, because I am a pastor and I hear stories and many of you have had pains and hurts and offenses that are far beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life. And so I don't, mean, I don't say this in any way to belittle how hard and difficult it is to forgive other people. We're going to talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. But I do know this, uh, that regardless of how hard it is to forgive, forgive other people, when we don't forgive, it does something to us. When we don't forgive, we actually have a hard, we, ha- we aren't able to participate in the Shalom party. We're not able to participate in the life that God has for us. And, and many of us, maybe we've tried really, really, really hard to be the right kind of person, do the right things, to, to say the right things. Uh, you see, the younger son had to repent because of all the bad things he did. The, young, the older son had to repent for the reasons he did all the good things he did. One had to re- repent because of the bad stuff he did. The other one had to repent because of how good he was. Because he was good for all the wrong reasons. Now, we read the story, and if we were to rewrite it, we would, like, I wish the older brother would have grace, would have forgiveness, that he would, he would actually be like the father and embrace his brother with arms, bring him back into the family at a cost to himself. And it's at this point in the story that we need to recognize that Jesus himself is the older brother. He is the older brother we all long for, not the older brother in the story. He is the older brother that perfectly reflects the Father's heart. He is uh, God with flesh on. He has the fullness of God in him. He has made visible God which is invisible. The older brother that we're looking for to embrace the younger brother, we see in the person of Jesus. 
who being crucified on the cross, whispers the prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He takes the punishment, he takes the cost to be in relationship with others at the expense of himself. Jesus is the perfect older brother. And as we learned last series, Jesus is also what it represents to be fully human and to come back to ourselves. And so the challenge, I think, for us over the next couple of weeks is that we take seriously what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the area of forgiveness, as difficult as it can be. And I'm not saying that it's an easy process. I'm not saying it's a one-time process. But the practice of actually forgiving, extending grace, and embracing others actually is very much tied into our ability to experience the life and the shalom that God wants for each and every one of us to experience. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as I said, we'll talk about this in future weeks, but I know this, that forgiveness, uh, especially when something very difficult has happened in your life, is not easy to give away. Uh, But this is what we know, that forgiveness is a re-gift. That forgiveness is something that God gives us through Christ. And then we are invited to give it away. And so the only way that I actually know of actually how to build a forgiving heart in my own self is to become more and more aware of how much God has forgiven me. The more I become aware of how the Father has chased me, how he's embraced me, how he's kissed me, how he's brought me back into the family of God, the more I actually have the capacity to just extend what God has given me to others. And so perhaps instead of just focusing on, you know, how hard it is to forgive somebody, we need to turn our eyes back to Jesus and recognize how much he's forgiven us and let that forgiveness transform us into Christ-likeness. So let me pray and then let's respond in worship together. Father, we thank you that your posture is seen so clearly in your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the perfect older brother. Lord, I know that people in this room, people that are tuning in online, um, have been hurt significantly by others. Lord, but I also know that that hurt um, has continued to hurt them because of unforgiveness. That many of us find ourselves, when we feel like we're on the outside of the party looking in, we feel resentment and we feel bitterness, we feel anger. And Lord, we don't know what to do with it. Father, I pray that your spirit would meet us in that place, that we would become people of grace and forgiveness. Not people that just say, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it, but we recognize that this forgiveness comes at a cost to ourselves, but we will respond in that way because we have been responded to in that way. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you have embraced us into the family of God. May we be people who do the same. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.